2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 1. Let us hear God's word. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. <clears throat> and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. <clears throat> May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we saw in chapter 5, we... Uh, first saw the end of the opening section of uh, this book. The first main section ends with the coronation of David over all of Israel. And then beginning in verse 6, we see the beginning of this next section taking us through chapter 10. And the focus in chapter 5 has been <clears throat> on the establishment of David as king. We see him conquering Jebus and establishing his throne in Jerusalem. We see Jerusalem is built up. David then has his house built and his family is built as well. David has relations with foreigners, with Hiram especially. We see him coming to build the house and also with the Philistines. You might even say that was a good relationship in the sense that David conquered them. Um, the Philistines now are no longer a problem in Israel under David and even uh, Solomon. And this is due, of course, to David's obedience, trusting in the Lord, a stark contrast to Saul. Well, we turn now <clears throat> to the establishment of worship in Jerusalem. And this takes the whole of this chapter uh, here in 2 Samuel, and as we'll see, it covers three different chapters in First Chronicles. And so we begin here with the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and then David is going to plan to move the tabernacle to Jerusalem and then build a temple. But of course, God tells him, no, your son will do these things, and that we'll see in chapter 7 as well as in First Chronicles. And so David then makes many preparations for Solomon to build the temple. So we'll talk about these things here over these uh, next couple chapters. But as I said, First Chronicles is going to elaborate greatly on these things, and we'll see some of that even tonight. And so chapter 6 then, as always, there is debate, and people have different opinions. But it is likely, as I see it anyway, that chapter 6 occurred within a short period of time of chapter 5. Now, remember, chapter 5 has a variety of, of things that happen there. But I'm inclined to think that chapter 6 follows on the heels of the defeat of the Philistines, um, possibly within months, maybe within a couple years. 
Chapter 7, on the other hand, that definitely takes place toward the end of David's reign. Because you recall that David had his house built by then, and that's why he wants to build God a house. And if we're right with all this about Hiram, we're talking about the last five to ten years of David's rule in Jerusalem. And so uh, we're going to have a kind of beginning and end of David's rule here in these next uh, two chapters. Uh, Obviously, though, the author puts these two events together because the building of God's house and David's house uh, go hand in hand here in this way. And, of course, this emphasis on worship in Jerusalem. So, again, today we are going to begin here with the moving of the ark. And so verse 1, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. All right, the New King James begins with this word again. Um, You could just simply say and, or then, or now here. Uh, It's a general connection to the previous events. Uh, And it says here that he uh, gathers 30,000 choice men. Now, some have tried to make the case that the reason why David brings so many is because the ark is not that far from Philistine territory. And if it is true that David had just defeated the Philistines and they're not too happy about it, maybe he's thinking, I need to take some extra men to go get the ark. You might remember in uh, Genesis chapter 14, Abraham went and defeated the kings and rescued Lot. And then in chapter 15, God says, you don't need to be afraid. And there seems to be a clear connection there. Some have tried to say we have that connection here as well. Um, Maybe. Um, whatever the case, David is not taking the whole army. Remember, there's 340,000 plus. Uh, And so he takes a selection of them, less than 10%. But surely this number, this choice number, included more than just military. Uh, There were elders, priests, Levites, other non-military leaders as well. Um, Certainly, uh, you had people playing music and people singing And even later, for sure, we know there was dancing. All right, so let's now turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and um, use this to help expand our understanding of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, generally speaking, is much more condensed in comparison. So here in 1 Chronicles 13, hey, let me just first say, notice the connections here with this initial movement in chapter 13. In chapter 15, this is when David goes back to bring the ark the rest of the way to Jerusalem. You see a whole lot more information here. And then in chapter 16, you see that the ark is brought and uh, David has his psalm here. So there's uh, quite a bit more. And chapter 16 is considered by many one of the most important chapters in all of the account of David. And in some ways, even of the Old Testament, though Uh, Obviously, there are other important chapters, but uh, you may remember 1 Chronicles 16 is very significant in some of the arrangement of the Psalms, so I'll bring that out again once uh, we get there. I I do intend to look at this uh, as we're going through this chapter in 2 Samuel. All right, so verse 1 here in 1 Chronicles 13, and David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. Now, obviously, the first part of that is talking about military leaders. So certainly some or maybe a large percentage of these 30,000 were military. 
but that last word for leader, though it can be used in the context of the army, it is more commonly used in the context of families, clans, tribal leaders, priests, civil leaders, think of the elders in the gate and so forth. So it uh, is indicating to us that David is bringing all the choice leaders of the country, not just a big military contingent to protect him from the Philistines or something like that. So then, verse 2, And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. So you see, obviously, this verse is uh, helping us to see this very point. And so David here is wanting all these representative leaders to come and move the ark. And so he is sending out word for that to happen. And again, you see some of these different places mentioned. Note especially the Levites, the Levitical cities. Remember, there are 48 of them throughout Israel. And so uh, David is summoning them to come gather together to move the ark. And so then verse 3, And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. All right, now, notice how that ends. If you have another translation, it may not use the word since, but use the word in. Uh, Most naturally, the Hebrew preposition there means in. And so it has not been inquired in the days of Saul. And I think that fits best. So let's now keep something here, and let's now go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And let us refresh our memory here on some of these events. 1 Samuel 4. You recall, this was in the days of Eli and his sons. And the Philistines come out, and they fight, and Israel's losing. So they go get the ark of the Lord to ensure victory. And, of course, that doesn't happen. Verse 11. uh, The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Eli receives word, he falls over, he dies, right? It's not a good thing. Chapter 5, you recall here, uh, the ark is now in uh, Dagon's temple, and Yahweh is winning. Dagon's falling over and falling apart, and the Philistines are getting sick and having tumors and so on. So in chapter 6, note verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, They say enough is enough, and they want to send the ark back to Israel. So beginning in verse 10, you remember it says uh, this, that they took these two cows who had just given birth, right, and hitched them to the cart and kept their calves at home. And in verse 11, they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors, and the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Lords of the Philistines went after them. And it comes to Beth Shemesh, right? And so uh, they see the ark coming back. They uh, destroy the the cart and make a fire and sacrifice uh, the cows and, of course, have the ark there. And so things are, you might say, looking good. Um, Now, if you look at your map here just a moment, let me uh, start showing you some of the geography here. Refresh your memory as to where things are. Now, on your, the land of the 12 tribes map, as I've been using a lot here recently, 
You see where Jerusalem is, Bethlehem to the south, Beth Shemesh to the west. You see where Ekron and Gath are. So the ark came from this area, and the cows brought it to Beth Shemesh. Okay, now we'll look at this here again in just a moment. Now if you look down at verse 19 here in 1 Samuel 6, He, that is Yahweh, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And so, remember, Beth Shemesh was a city of, uh, sorry, was a Levitical city. So they had Levites there, probably some priests and so on. They should have known better. They were the ones who were teaching Israel about these things. But they looked in the ark, and this accounts in part for the severity of God's judgment. So then in verse 20, the men of Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. All right, so first of all, the ark came to Beth Shemesh, a Levitical city. Okay, why do they send it to Kiriath-Jerim? If you look at your map, you see where it is. It's just a little bit uh, north and east of Beth Shemesh. Why didn't they send it back to Shiloh? That's where the tabernacle was. Kiriath Yerim was not a Levitical city. That'd be like sending college professors that teach at Grove City over here to Harrisville or something. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? You would send them to where it should be. Right in Shiloh, ultimately, and certainly not this place. Okay. <clears throat> Do you see the mess, as it were? <clears throat> and I think you could say they were abdicating their responsibility as Levites. Well, they send it here. It comes to Abinadab's house, and it says that they set apart Eleazar to care for the ark. Was he a Levite? doesn't say specifically. And then it says here that it stayed for 20 years. Now this has raised some questions. <clears throat> because from this event here in 1 Samuel 6 and 7 to David's event here in 2 Samuel 6, you're talking possibly 50 or 60 years later. So how does that fit together? Obviously you have the 40 years of Saul, you have the seven and a half years of David in Hebron, and then however long before Saul, this uh, event took place. So some have tried to say <clears throat> something like this. From the time the ark came to Kiriath-Jerim to the time Samuel judged and defeated the Philistines, what we see here in chapter 7, that there is a 20-year gap in there. Maybe so. If you turn a moment to 1 Samuel 14, the only time the ark is mentioned during Saul's reign is here. 1 Samuel 14 and verse 18, Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for at the time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. <clears throat> so obviously it had come back to Israel from Philistia, 
Um, this is the only time it's mentioned for Saul. Maybe this is the 22-year reference after Saul had it brought for whatever reason, right, to help them win or whatever, right, went back to Abinadab's house. However we understand all of that, it's back at Abinadab's house. And, uh, and so I'm inclined to think that the 20 years uh, is either um, these two options. I'm not, I'm not sure which one to say, either Samuel or here now with Saul. But uh, <clears throat> overall, we're talking about a 20-year gap, or excuse me, a 50- or 60-year gap. All right, well, let's come back then to 1 Chronicles 13. And we pick up again with verse 3, right? Let us bring the ark. It has not been inquired at in the days of Saul. Okay, Saul used it in this one way, but didn't really seek God's presence. And so now verse 4. Then all the assembly said that they would do, uh, do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all of the people. Eric mentioned something like this in Sunday school. When you have a good leader, it helps the people to be godly. Here's David, in contrast to Saul, leading the people in righteousness. Here in regard to the worship of God. He summons the people, and they come. They're glad to come. This is a good thing. Maybe some of them were like uh, saying things like, well, about time, you know, tired of Saul ignoring this. Maybe there are others who hadn't even really thought about it. They're just doing whatever the king says. But um, uh, we see uh, certainly righteousness in this way. So then verse 5. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath to Urim. Now, on my double-sided map here, <clears throat> if you turn it over to the kingdom of David and Solomon, if you have a map in your Bible or something, look for a broader view here. And you see where Egypt is. It's actually off of this map, right, to the south and to the west. You do see the wadi of Egypt mentioned. And you see where Hamath is then, way to the north, up near the Euphrates River. So much further north than Damascus, even. So... From this wide range, this wide area, people came to David, came to Kiriath-Jerim to move the ark to Jerusalem. So then, verse 6, And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, to Kiriath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. All right. Now, as for Kiryat Jirim, um, there are various names for this place um, and even locations. Here it says it's in Judah. If you read something else, it may say Benjamin or even Dan. And that's because it was basically right on the border of all three of these tribes. Here we have the name Baalah as well as Kiryat Jirim. Uh, in Joshua 15, we see that as well. In fact, Joshua tells us about Allah is Kiriath-Jerim. Um, we also have the name um, uh, Kiriath-Baal and Baalei-Judah, which is what we read in 2 Samuel 6. So you have these several names for the same place, and it's probably because the name of the town changed over time. From the days of Joshua now to David, right, you're talking 400 years of, of time that has elapsed. And certainly, uh, 
I'm not sure that this location was called Harrisville 400 years ago. So uh, something like that is probably the case. <clears throat> it went, <clears throat> excuse me, from the city of Vale now to the city of forests or trees. Um, and maybe that's because, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Israel has uh, rejected Baalism, at least at first. So again, if you see there on your map, you see where it is in uh, cor- correlation to Jerusalem, about nine miles away. All right, I will refer here again to First Chronicles tonight, here chapter 13. But let's turn back now to Second Samuel chapter 6. You see how these six verses is now elaborated upon uh, what the author in Samuel has told us. All right, so verse 2 then. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. All right. So as we come here to the ark, let me uh, say a few things about the ark of the covenant, the ark of God. You recall in Exodus chapter 25, when I preached through the section on the tabernacle, you have that extended section describing the building of the ark and what it was supposed to look like and, of course, what it represented. And we spent uh, a half a dozen weeks on that section because it is so incredibly important in our understanding of worshiping God. Now here, as we come to this uh, this chapter, the term ark is used 15 times in this chapter, more than any other chapter in the Old Testament except for one, and that is First Chronicles 15, and that too is used 15 times in that chapter. First Chronicles 13 uses the term nine times, First Chronicles 16 five times. Okay, so, uh, Obviously, we see it all together there um, in those uh, uh, different ways. So, excuse me, 29 times in First Chronicles 15 here to highlight and emphasize the point. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned this before. The only time the ark is mentioned from 1 Samuel 7 to this chapter is that one place in 1 Samuel 14 in regard to Saul. You might say the ark was forgotten for 40 plus years. Now, as for the ark, you may recall that it goes by a variety of names. Sometimes it's just the ark, sometimes the ark of God, sometimes the ark of Yahweh, sometimes the ark of the covenant, sometimes the ark of the covenant of God or the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. There's all these different names. Here in this chapter, the ark of God is used seven times. The ark of Yahweh is used seven times. And once we just have the ark. Clearly, this number of completion is intended. The ark of God, the ark of Yahweh. Yahweh is the true God. The creator of the universe is the covenant Lord who has come to be with his people. And this is the one that we worship. He is Yahweh of hosts. He is the one that dwells between the cherubs. It is his name, his character. His being that is associated with this box. The the Yahweh of hosts is the one that we worship. 
And so the, the focus is, is significant here in this way. Now you also may remember, and we talked about the ark, that the ark communicates three primary things. It communicates the throne of God. The king of the universe has placed his earthly throne here at the ark, at this box, in the tabernacle. And of course, David now is moving this to Jerusalem. And so this is the symbol of his presence, of his rule. But you also recall that the ark had a cover to it, the mercy seat, as we often say. And in Leviticus chapter 16 especially, we see a description of the high priest coming, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. So the ark is not only the place of God's throne, but the ark is also communicating the ideas of atonement. Atonement happens outside in the bronze altar, but the turning away of God's wrath happens here at the ark. We'll see more of that in Romans 3. And then thirdly, the ark is also the place of revelation. It mentions that in Exodus 25. We see it also later uh, in Exodus. This is the place where God would meet with Moses and reveal himself to them. So notice then we have the ark associated with the prophet. So we have the ark associated with the king, with the priest, and the prophet. And the ark, as Paul will say in Romans 3, connects with Jesus. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus, of course, is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is God who is with us, who has come to dwell in our presence, not in a box or above a box or something like that, but actually as a human to be with us. So the connections here are so significant um, and here's just a brief uh, overview here in this way. So then, <clears throat> let's focus on what David is doing here for just a moment. David is now the earthly king, but Yahweh is the true king. And for David, he's like, it makes no sense to have these two things separate. David's throne is in Jerusalem. Why wouldn't God's throne be there as well. And so David wants God's throne to come and more or less be beside his. And of course, take precedence. But for now, you might say it's out in the boonies. It's not in the tabernacle. And it's in this place. It's not even a Levitical city. And so David wants to fix this problem. Saul had ruled without God. We see that in many ways including here with the ark. But David desires to rule with God, under God. And so the place of worship was ignored by Saul. In fact, he had the priests killed. The prophets were ignored by Saul and even oppressed. But David is going to do differently. He wants the priests to be with him. He wants the prophets to be with him. Ultimately, he wants God with him as he rules. Godly leaders do not give lip service to God, like Saul did, and like so many in our country do. Okay. David wants to clearly show his submission to God here in this way. But we can't just make a grand display of religious fervor. We must do so genuinely, 
and we must do so according to God's word. And even David needed to learn this lesson, didn't he? And so even as I said this morning in Romans 3, we as believers are not under the law in the same way now that we are regenerated, but the law is still giving us a standard that we must abide by. And it's still telling us, you're not doing it perfectly. And David is getting that message here loud and clear. So, um, just a, a few broader thoughts about what's going on uh, here. So let's pick up now in verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohiah, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. Well, here David sounds like the Philistines. The Philistines, of course, used a cart to bring the ark back to Israel. And now David is doing the same thing. It's a brand new cart. And presumably the oxen that were used to pull it were without blemish and very strong and so on and so forth. Though it doesn't specifically say that. And it says here again about Abinadab, as we saw in 1 Samuel 7. But there's no other info about this man. So we cannot say if he was a Levite or not. Was he a priest? I don't know. Again, kiriath was not a Levitical city. Okay. <clears throat> so, Eleazar, his son, had been ordained to care for the ark. He's not even mentioned here. Why? Did he die? I mean, if we are 50 to 60 years later, okay, certainly possible. Was he too old to do this now? Some have tried to say that Uzzah is another name for Eleazar. Maybe. It says here that Uzzah and Ohio were sons of Abinadab. So does this mean they were brothers of Eleazar? Possibly. Okay. Uh, it's possible to take that word for son and refer to a descendant. So maybe these two men were sons of Eleazar and therefore grandchildren of Abinadab. We don't know for sure. Whatever the case, these two men are now doing this work with the ark. And it says they drove the cart. Now, don't imagine them sitting in a seat with a steering wheel. <laughs> don't imagine them riding on the backs of the oxen. <laughs> hey? But likely with harnesses, with ropes, with whips, these kind of ideas. So then verse 4, it says... And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. So obviously he's not sitting on an ark. Maybe he had a feed bag hanging over his shoulder to help coax the oxen along or something. But at the very least, they begin their journey to Jerusalem this day. If they started first thing in the morning, maybe they would have gotten there by, by nighttime. Uh, maybe they took two days to get there. Again, it's nine miles uh, up and down and so forth uh, through the mountainous area. So then verse 5, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. Now the point's pretty straightforward. This was a massive celebration. Again, it's bringing God's throne to Jerusalem. This is where worship is going to take place. 
And so numerous musicians join with all kinds of instruments. Now, you may recall in our study of the Psalms, uh, you have the harp, um, which was a solid body. You had the lyre, which was basically a harp with the, the hollow body, so more like a guitar. You may also remember that the word for tambourine is actually more of a, a drum without the rattles, and the sistrum is the one that had the rattles. So anyway, just a, um, a few words in that way. Uh, the, the point is clear. There are all kinds of musicians, all kinds of music. In First Chronicles 13, verse 8, it says they were singing too. It doesn't specifically say that here. And we know later that David danced. Uh, when they finally brought it all the way to Jerusalem, presumably they were doing the same thing here on the front end. Um, were there people lining the roads? Hey, were there fireworks? Was Ohio throwing candy to the kids? Hey, we know in verse 19 that David's going to hand out food. So imagine the scene. Far grander than any July 4th parade you've ever been to. A joyous event. Okay. So verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. All right. Now let's turn a moment to First Chronicles 13. And let me just call your attention specifically to this. Okay. Note there in verse 8, it says about the singing with all the other instruments. In verse 9, it says, when they came to Kaidon's threshing floor. All right, what's going on there? Well, Kaidon and Nacon could be the same person with a different name. Some have tried to say that the name Nacon is connected to the word for strike. Uh, in both passages, First Chronicles and Second Samuel, in the next verse, it says here about God striking him. Okay, so <clears throat> the word for strike is nakah. This is nakon. Uh, maybe it got a new name because of what happened. But whatever the case, this is what happened, and we don't know where it is, but it is obviously somewhere along the way between Kiryat Yerim and Jerusalem. Presumably, it's at the top of a hill because that's where they had threshing floors, right? They'd throw up the grain and the wind would blow the chaff away and so forth. And so again, imagine what's happening. Um, if, if they're going up a hill and they're coming to the crest, right? The weight of the ark and the cart would be pulling backward on the oxen. If they have crested the hill and they're on their way down, now it's pushing them forward, that extra weight. And... Um, Whatever happened exactly, they stumbled. Maybe there was a rock in the way. Maybe there was a pothole like here in Western PA. Maybe these people got too close. Maybe the marching band in front of them stopped suddenly. You know, whatever it was, they stumbled. And Uzzah tries to prevent the ark from falling off the cart. Obviously, he meant well. But he did wrongly. He defiled the ark. Remember, God can protect himself. We saw that clearly in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and following. God could defeat Dagon. God can 
bring tumors against his enemies. He doesn't need any help. So verse 7. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Pretty straightforward idea here. God's not happy, and he kills Uzzah for touching his ark. Now, the word there for error, your translation may use a different word, like possibly an irreverent act or something. This is the only time the word's used in the Old Testament, so there's a little uncertainty as to the meaning. But either way, you get the point, right? It was irreverent. He shouldn't have done it. It was a mistake. It was sin. All right. Now, let's turn here a moment to Exodus 25. And, of course, I made reference to this a little bit ago. Here with the description of the ark. This is how they were to build it. Exodus 25, verse 12. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. I mean, that's just the way it was made. They should have known this. Let's turn over to Numbers chapter 4. Here in this chapter, we have a description of what Israel was to do when God moved them. And remember that Levi had three sons. And so the sons of Kohath were to take care of all the furniture in the tabernacle. The sons of Gershon were to take care of all the coverings. And the sons of Merari were to take care of all the structure, right? The poles and the bases and, and so forth, the walls and such. All right, so in verses 5 and 6, note what it says here. Numbers 4, verse 5. When the camp prepares the journey, Aaron and his son shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put uh, on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely, entirely of blue. And they shall insert its poles. And then if you jump down to uh, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. Pretty straightforward here, isn't it? You carry the ark with poles. You cover it up. So you don't look at it, so you don't touch it. Now, <clears throat> someone might say, well, I mean, come on, give him a break. That was 450 years before David brought the ark from kiriath Jearim. I mean, come on, you can't expect somebody to remember something for that long, can you? Well, God thinks we do. By God's abundant grace we have his word and we are now 3500 years removed from these first commands about the ark okay? he keeps his word so that we know what he expects of us there is no excuse to say we didn't know now think about that 450 years that's roughly what 1570 Jamestown wasn't even established by that time. 
This is a long time ago in comparison. And yet, God doesn't want any excuses. We need to know his word. We need to obey it. And so here, David and Israel should have known. Uzzah should have known his negligence even before he did it. Basically, Israel is as ignorant as Philistia here. We certainly have seen that in the church and even in the church in our day. Christians are as ignorant as non-Christians about God's word, unfortunately. But God expects us to know his commands. Ignorance is no excuse. You remember... C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia. And you recall how he talks about Aslan, the Christ figure, and he says that Aslan is not a tame lion. Well, Yahweh is not tame either. And that, of course, is what Lewis is trying to communicate. This is not to say that Yahweh is violent or that he has uncontrollable rage or something. But he does not do whatever we want. And he doesn't just say, ah, don't worry about it. I know my standard is this, but I'm just going to ignore my standard. God doesn't do that. The standard is clear. And either you've kept it or you haven't. In Narnia, of course, Aslan came and went. And that's when Lewis especially emphasizes this point. And the point is, we cannot control God. We must heed his word. We must know it well enough to heed it. God is holy, fear him, honor him. We can't control him. We must do what he says. And so here is this first point. Another point we learned from this is is this idea. How many times do we try to give people the benefit of the doubt? And certainly there's a place for that. But how many times, especially for ourselves, do we say, well, the intentions were good. Uzza meant well, didn't he? Well, sure. But that doesn't mean it was right. And sometimes you hear people say, I feel bad for Uzza. I mean, that really shouldn't have happened to him, right? Well, we might feel bad for Uzza in one sense, but... Again, he should have known better. Another way of looking at it is this. You know, David is trying to do something very special. He is trying to honor God. This whole event is to honor Yahweh, something Saul hadn't done, something that really hadn't been done for for over uh, 40, 50 years. Why is God so um, mean here? Why, Why is he not paying attention to their good intentions? How many times have we said the same things, especially about ourselves? Okay. Well, th- this is what I meant to do. This is what I was thinking about, and so on and so forth. And, and then we get upset when it doesn't go so well, when somebody misunderstands or God providentially okay, puts a pothole in our way or something to that effect. Okay. We want to say, well, I, mean, I was just trying to help. I was just trying to be giving. I was just trying to... Uh, follow God's word and give some good advice or something to that effect. 
It's been a while since I mentioned this, but you may recall that I've said before <clears throat> that when I was in seminary, there was a book we were required to read, and it was called Well-Intentioned Dragons. And the basic premise of the book is that when you're in church, right, speaking to uh, pastors-to-be, the idea is simply you're going to have a lot of people who are well-intentioned, but the results of their intentions are dragonish. They spew forth fire. They knock people over with their big tails. Okay. <clears throat> Good intentions are not enough. Isn't this what Paul has been telling us in Romans 1 to 3? Good intentions are not enough. Even for the people of God. Even though we are no longer under law and we are under grace, good intentions are not what please God. Christ pleases God. And that's why he's happy with any of us. And so here are, are two men, Uzzah and David in particular, who had good intentions. They weren't trying to do wrongly, but they did. It's not enough to have good intentions. We cannot live in ignorance. We cannot live with good intentions. And we also cannot presume on grace. It doesn't come right out and say this, but certainly this is a biblical idea. David, of course, was anointed, chosen by God. Hey, and he was far better than Saul, even already. Abinadab and his sons were set apart. The ark was at their place. Hey, lots of grace, lots of good things here in this way. God, of course, has elected us unto salvation. He has given us many, many blessings. This is no license for us to do as we please. We can't presume on grace and think, well, God's just going to be happy with us no matter what we do. Okay. This is what got Israel into exile. Okay. They thought, well, we're elected. Right? God's not going to send us into exile. Well, yeah, he did. We cannot presume on grace. And as we look at David's response in verses 8 and 9, I think he's coming to see that too. Right. So, in chapter 5, we saw God fights for us. God blesses us. God is with us. Now here, as David is trying to focus on God with us, we have to remember that we must obey him and do his commandments. We cannot control God. We cannot use him for our religious activities. We must fear him. And as Dr. Davis said in his commentary, no one would ever invent a God like this. We would make him far more tame than this. So, a few thoughts here tonight, and we'll pick up, Lord willing, in verse 8 next time. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and God, we thank you again for your word, and we are so thankful that you have not left us in the dark so many thousands of years later, but you have preserved your word that we may know you, that we may know your truth. Lord, we pray and ask that you would then help us to know it, that we would not presume, that we would not rely on good intentions, 
that we would not excuse ourselves for our ignorance, but that we would know you, that we would know your word through Christ by the power of your spirit. Lord, we are thankful that Christ, the ark, as it were, has come to be with us as prophet, priest, and king. And we are thankful that even now, by your spirit, you are with us here in this place. May we heed these words and not treat you carelessly, but to treat you with fear and reverence, as David is learning. And so we pray for your mercies here in this way. And again, we are thankful that you treat us in Christ. We pray all this then in Jesus' name. Amen.